How do you bring MedTech to market? My name is Karen Brown and I'm your host. On MedTechRx, you'll hear from the experts, people who have worked for us, people we've worked with, and the people we see advancing MedTech innovation. I don't have to tell you this is a complex industry. I know because I've lived it. After receiving my PharmD and working on clinical trials in academia, pharma, and a global med device CRO, I'm building my own firm. Tune in and enjoy. Today we're speaking with Luis Blanco, co-founder and chief technology officer at Dietech Diabetes, a medtech startup developing innovative solutions that address the issues people experience when using diabetes care technology. Luis immigrated to the U.S. from Cuba and is a first-generation college graduate with a degree in biomedical engineering. Luis recently secured a $1 million investment from the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation, JDRF, and is bringing this innovative technology to market. To connect with Luis and the team at Dietech, grab the link in the show notes. Luis, how are you doing today? Good. I'm excited. Excited to be here? Yeah. I'm excited to learn a little bit more. I know you have a lot of exciting developments, including a grant from the JDRF, Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation. But before we dive into all of that, can you just give us a little bit of a background on Dietech? Yeah. So Dietech is a company I started with a group of friends when we were coming out of college. It really started because we were part of the same research lab and my co-founder, John, he gave a presentation about how he's, you know, had type 1 diabetes for a long time. He was an insulin pump and he was reporting on a problem that was basically related to the infusion of insulin. He was like, my pump does a really great job, but sometimes it'll leak from the site. And I don't know when that happens. My blood sugar goes up and I start thinking, was it the food I ate? Was it the amount of insulin I dosed? And eventually realizes that it's a, basically a failure that causes the insulin to leak out into the skin. I was working in microfluidics at the time and being an engineer, I was like, we can fix that for sure. <laughs> so <laughs> I talked them into like, hey, let me help you with this project and we'll publish and it'll be good. It'll look good for all of us and we'll go off and do whatever it is that we're going to do. We kind of got into it and realized it's a really big problem for a lot of people across all different pump types. And it causes some folks to come off of the therapy and kind of affects their mental health about how they're managing their disease. Well, through a series of events, we started raising money, filed a patent, all this stuff, and kind of ended up here. We're <laughs> in too deep, as they say. But the, <laughs> the company focuses primarily now on software development. So we have an algorithm that uses machine learning to detect whenever there's a failure from these infusions, whether it be an occlusion, a partial occlusion, a leak, what have you. And we're also developing a software platform around it for our clinical trials and our studies to to be able to show the data, but also for other devices that might want to take advantage of a digital health platform. So, Sure. Yeah, thanks for that overview. Are, when you were still finishing up your degree, did you decide while you were still in college to launch the company? It was weird because we entered a pitch competition and we got most innovative for it. So there was a cash prize associated with that. And they said, okay, we'll give you the money, but you have to be a company. So mm-hmm. we kind of talked that we're like, well, we want the money. So we'll form an LLC. That, that's how they get you. And then they were like, okay, you should do the pattern and all that stuff. So that's kind of how it started. It was never really, I think the goal was never to start a company. It was just kind of to publish, I think. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And and I think I've followed your success over the last few years. And I feel like you've followed a very traditional, in some ways, academic route. You were an awardee of a SBIR, STTR mm-hmm. award. And I see you always presenting your research at various 
conferences and presenting posters. What would you say was the benefit of doing that? And maybe conversely with the negatives to starting with that mindset of coming straight out of university? I think when you build a business, it's kind of tough because especially in medical devices, it's a very sort of interesting dynamic where you have to understand the market, but there's a lot of regulatory hurdles. There's a lot of developmental hurdles, especially for a young team, because we're trying to figure out, okay, like we know the problem we want to solve. Like we have an idea of how to solve it, but we need money to come up with a solution or productize it. So we would talk to investors. Investor was like, okay, show me the data. And we're like, well, investor, sir, we need money to get data to do the thing. So it became a loop of like, we need the product to raise money. We need money to build the product. So where do you go? And so for us, it made sense to go up to one of the agencies, right? Typically you do the NSF or you do the NIH. NIH put out a special solicitation for, it was almost like it was made for us. It was like, how do you improve insulin pump therapy when it comes to different failures that affect the patient population? So it was very targeted. We took advantage of the, this was during COVID. So things were kind of like slowing down. Investors weren't investing as heavily. So we applied and it was crazy because we got it. And the reason I say that's because we're a very young team, right? We're below 30 years old. At the time I was like 24 or 25 or something. And I don't have a PhD. So I was like, they're trusting basically this kid to take this money and do a project. And it was a big vote of confidence for us, right? And it comes with a little bit of notor- uh, notoriety where you're like, okay, the NIH believes in what you're doing. The patients believe in what you're doing. So there's something to it. So it's, it, there's good things and bad things to raising through a grant mechanism. It does make the project more technical, which for some investors makes it harder to understand. I think all the complexities. So, but for us, it was a perfect fit, right? Because we had all this research data and we're like, what do we do with this? How do we take advantage of it? And that's where we want that route. Yeah. Yeah. I'm kind of going through a similar experience right now because I, I went in as an MPI, a multiple principal investigator on a NIH grant to establish a research evaluation and commercialization hub here at the University of Montana. And there's part of me, we're going back and forth right now. It hasn't been awarded quite yet, but we should hear within the next month. But there's part of me that's like, oh, if we get it, I'm going to I'm not going to be okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's crazy because when you're building a business and there's so many tough parts of it as right, money is only part of it. But the thing is like, no one really prepares you for what happens after you get the money. Cause you're always like living in the dream. You're like, okay, we're going to do this. And you have all your use of funds and you have your plan for a couple of years. But then once you get it, you know, you think, oh, all my problems are solved. And realistically, what that means is like, now you have real problems because now you have funds to take action. You have to make sure of what you're doing. And then there's consequences to like spending money on the wrong things or not at the right time. It feels like there should be like this big flag when you're finishing a marathon and you're (laughs) kind of crossing the line. You're like, all right, we did it. And someone just hands you a bunch of cash. But it just, I think then it really sets in. You're like, oh crap, I actually have to do things. What do you think was the best thing that you did throughout this entire process, whether it be networking or bringing on team members? What was the, the big catalyst, I would say? Yeah, I think for us, it was a couple things. So we started in 2018, coming out of college, I had gone off to work for a big medical device company, because I've been working my entire life to get this big fancy job as an engineer. And so I was working two jobs, I was doing, I was in the OR doing my job and stuff. And it was like, with the patients and the surgeons and all that stuff. And I was doing diet tech at night. So I'd be getting a couple hours of sleep every night, walk around giant bags underneath my eyes. And yeah. <laughs> and I realized if this is ever going to happen, I have to commit. 
and the job was really great and, and I grew a lot, but it wasn't what my passion was in, I think. So I left that. So that was like the first big decision. I think it's committing. So I, I come in, I was living in Seattle. The company is based out of Memphis. I moved to Memphis, which was a whole kind of culture shock going from like mountains and PNW down to the Mid-South. And the committing was a big thing around that time too was COVID. So we're like, okay, how do we take advantage that things are slowing down? And at the beginning, we were a hardware product. We were basically putting sensors in tubing and creating what I call smart tubing. It's kind of a silly name, but sensor augmented infusion set was the tagline. Mm. And so we went out to the customers and said, hey, would you wear this? And whenever you have a sensor, you need battery. So then you start thinking about, okay, I need processing, I need battery, I need this. And it was making the device more bulky. And a lot of patients were like, "It'd be the product's really great, but the form factor's not great. So we decided to pivot and say, okay, let's put the hardware more as a research tool and let's focus on the software. And so that was the next big change was like staying flexible. And going to the customers, I think a lot of people that I've met when they're building products, I think at a young age or haven't done it before, they're focused on like the, the final version or like their vision for it. And I think there, there's a difference between young entrepreneurs and seasoned entrepreneurs where the first thing you do is go get customer validation and say, is this something you would pay for? How much would you pay? Like, what are that? So we try to do that as much as possible. At the time, we were still small. So it was like friends and family and kind of getting that close feedback. The last thing we think we did that really has helped us a lot is networking. So we have a really big advisor board, everything from physicians to people in industry to company representative people that have done it from all backgrounds, like business, regulatory, all that kind of stuff. And having those advisors that can really say, and, and they have to be tough advisors, right? Because we've had advisors in the past that have been really friendly. They're like, oh, everything you're doing is great. This slideshow looks great. You're going to make a bunch of money. In 10 years time, you're going to be living Malibu with a yacht. And like, those, those are really great for you having a beer with them. But when you need someone to kind of kick your butt and say like, hey, this is bad. You should not do this. Or you should change this and be realistic. I think those are the ones you want. So we've had really good advisors that have kind of praised us for the good things, but also been really critical at making sure that we're doing the right stuff when we need to. And I think that's really helped. It's staying limber, or not stuck on something, pivoting when you have to, and having a good network is important. Yeah, absolutely. I like what you said about getting it in front of the end user or your target audience and figuring it out. I think sometimes some of those little sayings like build it and they will come kind of set mm-hmm. you up for six for failure. And it's so important to just like do that beta testing or even have a deck. Something that I started a few years ago was just have this master deck where it was like, this is the vision. And I would present it to a number of people and it's changed over the years, but basically getting it to the point where people are like, yep, that makes sense. Yeah. This is going to, this is the great North star for you. Mm -hmm. So you talked a little bit about working your whole life. And I know you came from Cuba, right? From mm-hmm. To the U.S. Yeah. Tell me a little bit more about that. So I was born in Placetas, Via Clara, Cuba, which is it's like the central province of the island. And in 2000, we got lucky. My mom basically won the lottery, if you will. It's like a big lottery drawing. You kind of put in a paperwork and they pick you. They don't give you cash, but they give you visas. Oh, wow. um, so they're kind of like, hey, we're going to kick you out, but in a good way. So we had some family in Miami, so, so we moved to Miami and we immigrated to the U.S. And it was good, I think, for, for everybody because it's hard. Cuba has a lot of politics and stuff, and it's hard to develop as the same way you would in the U.S. But growing up, it was Hispanic household. My parents still only speak Spanish. And my whole life, my, my mom was like, you got to be a doctor. 
like doctor, doctor, <laughs> doctor, 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 doctor. And I was like, yeah, that makes sense. Like, yeah, I can do that. My, my aunt's, my, my dad's sister is a doctor. I was like, yeah, I can do that. Sounds great. So all through high school and stuff, I was in different medical organizations and doing all the things you have to do. And around 11th grade or 12th grade, when they're starting to ask you like, what do you want to major in? What kind of university? I was like, oh yeah, doctor. So I Googled how much does it cost to become a doctor in the US? And it was like, oh, $200,000 for med school. Immediately, I was like, I'm not going to become a doctor. <laughs> I was like, we can't afford that. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I started looking around. I was taking entrepreneurship classes, you know, as electives, and I was good at math. So I was like, okay, maybe some kind of engineering. My dad's a mechanic, so I was like mechanical engineering. And around that time, I had heard about this new field that was emerging, which is biomedical engineering. Basically, you take all the technical stuff, but you apply it to medicine. And I was like, that's great. That seems to me like a good fit. I can do it in four years. I don't need to go to med school. And I can afford this program. So I, I get to college and because my parents are like, yeah, well, you're going to go to college, graduate, be successful. That's it. That's the plan. Mm-hmm. Like, All right. <laughs> that, that's the plan. Yes, ma'am. So I get to college and do biomedical engineering and it comes with a whole series of events. And a really good friend of mine from high school was part of an organization called SHEP. It's the Society of Hispanic Professional Engineers. You don't have to be Hispanic. You don't have to be an engineer, an engineer to join. It was just like a really good <laughs> group of friends. That was our tagline. You don't have to be a spank. You don't have to be an engineer. Uh, open all. Yeah. Um, We're open for everyone here. Yeah. but Very it, inclusive it, of you, of the exactly, time. <laughs> exactly. But they're really helpful because my buddy was basically my mentor. He was like, this is how you interview for a job. This is what you should be doing. You should have internships, go to conferences, kind of everything we do now for Diatech. Same networking, same professionalism started there. And it's because my parents... I'd never gone to university, especially not in the States. I'm a first-generation student and the first one to graduate from my family here in the U.S. So they say, go to college, get a job, be successful. But they don't really know what that means or right. like the, the steps. So that helped me go through. And as I was going through college, I was like, okay, my goal in life is to work for this giant medical device company. Which, which was, one? Which, uh, Did you have was, one in mind? You were like, striker. <laughs> <laughs> no, but my first year I went to a conference and I was invited to this sort of information session for Johnson & Johnson, part of their medical device division with Ethicon, which is like surgical tools. I was sold. I was like, this is great. I love the company. I love the the division. I'm going to get a job with them. They told me no like four times, five times. Every year I would go back, every year they would tell me no. <laughs> Eventually I, I had gotten some sales experience over at GE and then they hired me for a company called Biosense Webster, which does like real-time mapping of the heart for electrophysiology. So I like accomplished my dream. And then at the same time, Dietic was kind of starting. And so it was a little bit of a conflicting feeling, but you obviously know how the story ended up. Yeah. Good for everyone. Yeah. 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 No, I had a similar thing. My mom came here from the Philippines. She did go to nursing school here though. So I was able to witness that throughout my childhood, but similar thing. You're going to be a doctor. You're going to be a doctor. I'm like, can I settle for a pharmacist? <laughs> Would that be okay? But yeah, no, I think it's definitely a different mindset or it takes a bigger frame shift to be able to set out and go down the entrepreneurship route when you're yeah. coming from that. No, it's tough. And my dad is a businessman. He's got like a mechanic shop that he owns for big commercial vehicles. But to this day, my mom's still like, are you ever going to go to med school? Like, can I convince you? Yeah. And I don't think about going back for a PhD every once in a while, but it's it's just hard because once you're in industry, it's kind of hard to go back and it's a huge commitment. But every couple of years or so, at least once a year, my dad looks at me and he's like, what is it that you do exactly? <laughs> <laughs> and, and I've gone from like a real explanation to every year, just kind of shorten it a little bit. 
Mm -hmm. And now I'm just like medical engineer or like software for medicine or something like. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, oh, okay, okay. And I'm expecting that that question at least once a year now. So I'm trying to. <laughs> You're prepping for it. Exactly. How short can you get that answer? Yeah. Well, for my mom, it's just how's the business? Like, good. That's it. Yeah, it's it. fine. Guys, yeah, under your eyes, like, it's fine. <laughs> Living the dream, the yeah, American exactly. dream. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well. You started with originally four co-founders, right? Mm -hmm. And everyone was in the same lab, working on the same type of technology? It was different projects. John had been working in diabetes because that's what his passion is in. And then I'd been working in microfluidics through like a series of, you can call them unfortunate events. Kind of just kind of ended up there. And the other guys were working, Nick and JC were working on synthetic biology. So they were getting really into that emerging field. So Nick, JC, and I were part of the same program in engineering. And then John was from the lab. So kind of convinced John. And I went to the guys. I was like, hey, I know you. You're on the lab and in class. Like, come with us. <laughs> It'll be a good time. And that's kind of how we guys started. Yeah. What is that like to have four co-founders? It's interesting because like, so now we're down to two. So just John and I. The other guys left at different times just for, for various reasons. Putting up with entrepreneurship is hard, right? Especially when you have a family and obligations. But when you have four people on a project, it's really good because you have already like a small team and you can rely on others to do different parts. But what's tough is that not everyone has skills yet, especially when you're starting so young, right? Because if you do it now with your friends and it's four people, you're like a bunch of experience, a bunch of years. So I'm sure it's a lot easier. But for us, it was like, okay, no one knows how to do this, but who wants to do it? Like, so we were just kind of divvy up roles. And so it was manpower. But then when you take a look from like a financial sense, you have four people you have to support off the bat. So you have no product, you have no funding, you have a loose roadmap, loose vision, and four people need to get paid, which is really tough. And I think it can put a lot of strain on it because then you're looking for four times the amount of money for anything you're doing. You're thinking like, do we need to expand the team or should we keep it? the same size and everyone just does a little more. So there's definitely good aspects of it, but I think at the end of it, it's tough unless you really have the resources to kick off that project. Yeah. You know, but the same thing is, I'm sure it's just as hard with one founder. And then, cause then you're doing everything. You're like, okay, I wish I had more people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, no, I think it's, it's definitely interesting to think about because especially when you go in so young, you don't really realize what you're committing to. Yeah. It's really like, basically a marriage to have the job founders to yeah. yeah yeah exactly and you get to see people in such uh i don't know if the intimate is the right word but you get to see them and how they navigate challenges and things that you can take from them and learn from them and things that you potentially are like nope this isn't aligned with our values what was like the biggest lesson that you learned starting out and from one of your co-founders that was able to transform the way that you run Diatech now? I'm trying to think back because like, and I'm really curious to hear your answer. For us, I think it's been the realization of like how much effort you need to put in. Because like, and I'm sure you know this uh, just as well as I do, if not, if not better. It takes a lot of commitment to run a company, young or old or, or anything. Because like, if, when you have an established business, you think about one of these giant companies, they have people that clock in and clock out and you're like, Oh, I didn't get to this today, but if it doesn't get done, like in the really grand scheme of things, like it doesn't really impact the day to day for the business. 
unless it's a very special project. But like, you have a report this due Friday, you end up doing it Monday, no big deal, you miss a deadline. It's, it's all of it's mostly internal. When you work at a small business or on a startup, if you don't do something, it just doesn't get done. So you start thinking about like, okay, I have this opportunity, like, do I want to put in the effort now on top of all the other stuff I'm doing or do I just let it go by? And I think you have to take every opportunity that's given to you, good or bad, even if you get rejected a million times because you're putting yourself out there, meeting new people every time. And that kind of grows your network. So off the bat, it was realizing that the guys, you know, that I was with were willing to put in that time. So even from like being in college, we were still doing classes and all that stuff. JC was still working because he graduated a year earlier, but we were still up to like two, three in the morning, four in the morning. Then everybody would wake up, go to class, go to work, whatever they had to do. And then we would come back. And that's the life for, for the last couple of years where it's like, you have to put in the time to see the kind of the fruits of your labor. And if you don't put in the time, it's just not going to get done. You're not going to grow as fast. So I think that was inspiring. Had it been different, had everyone had like a different attitude of like, oh, we'll just, whatever, let's not do it. We'll do it later. Or I can't today because I'm busy or this is too much. I want to go out with my girlfriend or something. I think it would have been different because when you see people working hard, it makes you want to work harder, right? Yeah. You get motivated. So I think that was the biggest thing that I learned early on. You need people that are committed and willing to go the distance for you. Yeah. Yeah. That kind of inspiration of you could dial it down even to like, if, you're going to do 50 push-ups. I guess I have to do 50 push-ups. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. No, I think it's just interesting how much, it, how big of a catalyst it is when you're working with people that closely to figuring out the personality traits that you need and what you're looking for in people moving forward. Has yeah. it been the same for you? What would you say was your big, what have you learned from your co-founders or your the people that were there from the beginning? Yeah, I think that... Mine was a little bit different because I was Cleo for so long. And I think I realized really quickly that I didn't have the knowledge and the capacity to coach other people up. I really needed people who were a lot better than me and Mm -hmm. a lot more experienced than me to come in. And I needed those people to have the skill set where they could come in and and build on their own and have that drive rather than someone who, if you are thinking about it more from like a corporate standpoint or someone who's moved their way up the ranks and just been a W-2 their entire lives, they really want that employee handbook or those SOPs to follow. And when you're starting to grow so fast, I think it's so important to just have someone who knows what that startup culture, like you were talking about, is like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, they reminded me that I think the reason we started off with advisors was because we realized we were all kind of idiots. <laughs> we were like, we're just a bunch of kids. And I'm still a kid in a certain extent, because obviously now we've been, the responsibility has grown so much, the, there, there's a lot on the line, but you don't really know anything going into a business. And like, again, unless you've done it multiple times successfully, I think it's hard to really appreciate like what it is you need to do, what you should be doing at any time. And coaching other people has been really tough. So right now I have, I oversee some folks on the development side and like my dream is to become that like manager that everybody wants, that like perfect vision, like always has the answers, always doing stuff. But I realized that there isn't really an employee handbook for Dietech. When you come in, we need people that are kind of very, it it sounds kind of cliche, but like self-motivating, like can get things done. We have a lot of tasks that are very like rough around the edges or like, haze in my mind i'm like i think i want to do this i'm not really sure how i've really like, heard someone do it this way or that way and yeah. the person that, that works under me his name is dylan he's done a really great job at like kind of taking that loose wiggly vision 
and being like, okay, I'll report back. And he goes off, does a bunch of research, comes back. He's like, the last thing he told me, he was like, all right, so I read the, the GDPR handbook. The official documentation is like, I, I understand like what the requirements are for like authorization, authentication. Like, then this is how we think we want to do like the user flow. And he's really good about taking my hazy vision, like distilling it down and then bringing it back and we can have discussion. But because you really do need those people that can like fly by themselves. Because not because you're busy and you really have time to teach people and like you don't know yourself. So you're just kind of like, <laughs> I don't know, do it. <laughs> yeah, you're like, I don't know, do it, but like we'll figure it out. <laughs> so, yeah. Is he a W 2 for you or consultant? He is. He's technically our, I think, first employee. Like, first oh, very cool. employee. Yeah. Congratulations. Been, yeah. It was, it That's was a big huge. deal. No one realizes how big of a deal that is. Oh, it's crazy. It's amazing. It's like, and my, my job, I think, as a manager is to sort of grow him in ways that I think could be valuable for him at Diatech, but afterwards. Because, like, our product, when he started, the we started using Jira because I'm not trained in software development. I'm, I'm self-taught. My degrees in chemical engineering with like a specialization in biomedical. None of that says software engineer. <laughs> so we started using Jira and like the first, when I hired him, I was like, okay, your job is to build a web app. And to anybody that, that knows software engineering, that's like the biggest, that's like the whole job. That's like the company. Right. I just kind of said like, do the whole thing. All right. Uh, I'll see you in two weeks. But it was, I've grown a lot, I think, working with him and learning how to manage and how to be more like communicative and how to give advice and criticism without it being like, without, while that's still being productive, I think, and trying to figure out like kind of where he's at and growing his skills and, and recognizing that I have weaknesses on my technical side and so does he and, and figuring out how we can put that together to, to grow. So at the end of it, whether we're successful or not, I think he'll go off to be a very competent full stack developer and he can work at pretty much any company now. Cause he's like, yeah, I did build a web app and here's all the steps that go with it. And so. Huh. Yeah, that's such a great feeling. What type of management skills did you hone and and what are like your processes now? Like say you're going to hire your next hire tomorrow, what different systems have you established within Diatech that could be helpful for our young entrepreneurs listening? Yeah. <laughs> I think so it's tough. So don't do it like me. We're flying by the seat of my yeah. pants. <laughs> uh, but I think for people that are starting out, I think having a an idea of what they want. I think when you're like in rural, for example, you have to be like a visionary. You have to kind of have a really, even if it's rough idea, like where you're going and being able to articulate that down to someone else. And I think the, the best thing you can do is like have a system or work on building a system. Cause like when you're by yourself and I'm sure you know this, it's like, you just do everything yourself and you don't really have to write things down. So one of the classic examples, if you work in software, you have a repository. You, know, you go to GitHub, build a repository. You can make branches, which is like little copies that you can modify and you can commit changes and pull them in and stuff like that. At some point, when you're working by yourself, you just end up pushing the master. Every update you do is like the final update, right? Because yeah. the system's designed for you to have a wide team and everybody to contribute a little bit and for you to have the system. But when you're by yourself, it's hard to, to keep to that. So you end up getting loose around it. When you have a team, you have to recognize like, okay, there has to be some kind of, even if it's a loose guidelines of how to do things or where you write things, you can have touch points and have some kind of structure. Because it's pretty hard to work under someone when there's no structure. And it makes it hard to communicate what you want or how to communicate effectively and give a little bit of feedback. Because as an entrepreneur, you put up with a lot of BS, a lot of unknowns and a lot of stuff. But as an employee, that's not really your job to put up with all that. Unless you're like much higher position, but if you're just an engineer, you should have a little bit more like structure, it'll make it a little easier. 
so you can come in and do your job effectively. Whereas like as a co-founder, you're just kind of, all right, you're just kind of doing everything and everything and it, it would just work out. Yeah. Putting um, out all the fires all the time. Exactly. As like a young entrepreneur, I think if you're going to hire someone, you should have an idea of what they're going to do, how to train them and then how to set expectations. Because if there's no expectations, you can't really get mad if something doesn't get done. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Same thing for me. And I approached it a little very systematically, I would say, in terms of just doing touch points morning and night and or, or beginning of the day and end of day and regular check-ins and letting the, the employee guide it a little bit. Like, how comfortable are you now? What are you thinking about this? Are, are you ready to go down to a weekly one-on-one or that type of system? But I like talking about the feedback piece because the second that you open that up to employees for them to give you feedback to, I think you just grow so much faster and you're like, oh, I think people underappreciate how much someone will, if you set that up as like a positive culture of we're here to build each other up and make each other better. This is the feedback I have for you. They accept it so much better and they give you so much value themselves. A hundred percent. For us, it's been because we're still pretty young and, and small team. What I like to tell the the folks that I work with is I don't have all the answers. Like I'm never going to pretend to know have all the answers. Like this kind of comes with the territory. Like, but I can I loosely know how to find the answers to my problems. So when we're like brainstorming about how to approach a problem, I'll be like, "What do you think? Like, what do you think we should do? Like, here's what I would do." And I can give like a rough outline, and I say, "This is the approach I would take, but you can feel free to do whatever." Dylan, for example, has been really good about taking that and then going out, doing the research, coming back. He's like, okay, I heard what you said, but I think based on like what's best practice, here's like the the guidelines. This is what I think we should do and how we should do it. And then it kind of gives a, a way for us to kind of interact. It's like, okay, like, can you learn more about this? Can you do that? And then we bring it back to the market. It's like, okay, what are other people doing? Because obviously they figured it out and they're a commercial product. Like, how do they do it? And how can we adopt that? The biggest lesson for me, I think, has been learning how other people learn. Mm-hmm. I do okay with very loose instructions and very like unclear goals. I can make it work. But I know some people need that direct feedback or kind of need a little bit more handholding. And I think it's not, I think it's important to recognize where they're at and match them to the employee. And it might be different for different employees. You might have people that can work really well with loose instructions. Some people need it to be like really watered down and bullet pointed, like do this, this, and this. So it really depends. And I think you have to be a little dynamic on how you approach it. Yeah, definitely. I think it's also nice to have a couple different like mediums to be mm-hmm. able to explain things because I love listening to stuff, mm-hmm. but I will not read. If I can avoid reading, then it's a good day for me. And yeah. so other people have that opposite effect where they just need something in front of them to be able to reference. And when you're an entrepreneur, that it's up to you to put that together for them. Yeah. I've taken the habit now of, of drawing everything I'm trying to reference. Yeah. So in high school, I had a, I had a math teacher who had, he had a whiteboard, like on the edge of the whiteboard, it'd be things you couldn't do in class. He'd have acronyms like, oh, I think I know what this is, but I forgot. Like, don't do that. You know, if you don't know, you don't know. <laughs> and one of the things was like finger stuff. So when you go in a meeting, you're like, well, you have this over here and you go like that. And you look like you're a crazy person just waving a hand around. Yeah. So I've tried my best to, uh, whenever I'm trying to get, I, re- I realize that I'm drawing like this. I'll open a PowerPoint or open up some kind of drawing thing and I'll, I'll draw it out. Be like, okay, like what if we have a box here? We do like this. And cause I think it, you know, when you're working with someone, it's hard to say like, Hey, I have no idea what you're talking about. 
You've right. lost me, you know, 10 minutes ago, yeah. like I've zoned out and it's always good to have a thing to reference. I've turned into like a visual person too for communicating. Yeah, absolutely. That's how I like to learn too. Yeah. So you talked a little bit about your time, Biosense Webster, Webster. right? Webster, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. What did you gain from that experience that helped you transition towards launching your own med tech company? Biosense was a kind of a wild experience for me. And give some background on what they do. They provide, it's it's a company in electrophysiology, right? So you look at tachycardias, arrhythmias, different parts of the heart. You can sort of understand if there's any part of the heart that's been affected by something like an like infarct, so like a, like a heart attack. And you go in there. So my first day on the job, I kind of read that they have catheters that would go in the body. You have like this map of the something. <laughs> they try to explain to you, yeah. and it just sounds crazy. <laughs> so I get on the job. I moved to Seattle, and we go into the OR. So you're, you're a vendor, and what the job is, you go in, you work with the physician, you can understand the case, and you say, okay, this is an atrial flutter or atrial fibrillation. You have to understand the procedure. Like, okay, how do we treat that? Like, we isolate the pulmonary veins. You're going to use these catheters. You're going to build a map. And you have to guide the physician. Sometimes you help them, like, get to the other side of the heart through a transeptal. And you have to be this very, like, expert in not only your products, but also electrophysiology. Like, you have to know as much of the physician as much as you can. So you become this expert. And I'm learning about this. And I was like, like, I'm 22. It's like, you're going in the heart and you're going on the other side. And what are you doing? And you're building this map and it's 3D. So I I learned CAD and and it helps orientate yourself in 3D space. But you're building these like live anatomically correct versions of that person's heart, right? So someone might have a vein over here, someone over there, someone might be missing a vein. So you have this really cool kind of dynamic workflow. You can take over control of the heart. So you can kind of like pace it at different rhythms. And to me, this is just mind blowing. So mm-hmm. had this kind of crash course in electrophysiology and cardiac and medicine. And then a lot of it is like understanding how to be in an OR, like the physician's obviously like in charge and like anesthesiologist and the nurse and the patient comes first and how to like be professional and polite, but also like supportive and helpful. The best thing I think the biosense gave to me was like exposing me to like the real world, what it means to be in a hospital setting, like in medicine, because as engineers and working in medical device, like you understand the product, you're very, you're a technical expert you've never seen it be used in the field. A lot of people will never get that privilege or meet a patient that's directly being affected by the work that you do. I saw how it goes from there all the way to the front line, the good, the bad, the ugly. And that they had a very crazy training program. It was like a nine month program. They buy you textbooks. You have all these lessons. You take quizzes, basically like a crash course. And my trainer was really good because he taught me how to train someone, like how you introduce them little by little and then eventually give them more freedom until they're taking over the process. It's been really helpful kind of wrapping my head around that. It was a great experience. It was, I love the company. I would go back, maybe not to that role, but just j and in, in general. But at some point I realized like, this is really great, but it's not what I want to do. I want to get more into software. I want to get more into product development. I want to do both the development, the sale, the selling, the business side, the ideation, all that stuff. And Diatech gave me the opportunity to do that. So two years go in, I make up my mind. COVID's starting, we're, we're ramping up, we're like in the thick of it and people are leaving and I'm like, okay, I'm getting more responsibilities. They want, they're asking more of me. And I was like, okay, I could stay here and take on these things or, and I won't have more time for dietetic or I can just leave. If there's ever a time to do it, it's now. And I told my mom and she was like, you're crazy. Like, <laughs> like why would you do that? Like, they're paying you well, you can enjoy the work, you're doing what it is you wanted to do. Why would you do this? And I was like, oh, it makes sense. It's like, don't worry, you know, <laughs> she still thinks I'm crazy. <laughs> yeah. not a lot to lose at that point 
because you're 24 at the I'm time? 20, I'm 24 at the time, yeah. 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 So and some of it could be like young adult. I think like you kind of, your head's big, you want to take on the world. Yeah. So you want to go out there and do the thing and be an entrepreneur. But it's, I always tell people you have to find your passion. If you're doing something you're not passionate about and you know it, like it's okay to say, I don't want to do this anymore and do something else. Yeah. It's kind of a waste of time to spend so much time doing something you're unhappy with. And then that's easier said than done, right? Right. Yeah. No, I feel the same way though. I wish more people at that age would take a little bit more risk. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I can help facilitate that by any means, but <laughs> I was young when I graduated from pharmacy school. I had started Clio, but it was still one person show consulting. And I graduated right in the middle of COVID. So I was already used to living like a college student. And I obviously had my daughters and my husband and a mortgage and everything, but mm-hmm. it does it. Mm, it feels like if more people can see it more like you have endless shots at the goal at that moment in time versus if you're looking down 20 years, 30 years in a corporate firm, do you like what your life looks like? Is that really what you're striving for? Or is it something that you can bet on yourself for? Yeah. I tell my wife, I, we had this conversation, I think a couple months back and I was like, I think I'm just a bad employee. <laughs> I was like, I know, I don't know how to shut my mouth. I don't know how to keep my ideas to myself. <laughs> I don't know how to like not try and do more than my role amounts to. And I think that's why this job like fits well with me for better or for worse. I think it gives me the flexibility to do what I want. I can grow in the ways I want to. And I think it's, it's supposed to be in positions to really like validate whether I, I'm correct in my line of thought. If I'm thinking about it the right way, everybody still have room to grow. And I think being an entrepreneur also like pummels you a little bit. Yeah. You get kicked down a lot. So you have to learn how to say like, okay, this didn't go well, but how do I grow from this and try not repeat the mistake? Or like, okay, I'd, I'd said something that I shouldn't have said in that meeting. How do I like internalize this and grow? But the other thing too, and, and this is really important, I think for anybody listening, I think you have to be okay with saying, I don't want this anymore. When we started a business, we had some co-founders that left and, I remember because one of them happened this year and I had come back from this big trip and went to Kyrgyzstan with, with Dylan to climb a mountain. That's the best employee bonding. Do you ever have any troubles? Go climb a mountain. Go climb a mountain together. Be best yeah. friends. Oh, um, I love it. That's great advice, actually. We could just yeah. end there. <laughs> yeah. But I came back and we had a meeting. He was really nervous. He's like, hey, man, I don't know how to tell you this, but I, I think about leaving. And I was like, have you made your mind up? He's like, yeah, I think so. Like, I've been internalizing it for a long time and I think I'm going to go. And I was like, that's amazing. I was like, congratulations, like get out, enjoy it, like go have fun. And it's because it's pretty taxing, right? Mentally. And like, there's a lot of stress and there's a lot of responsibility. So I think if you find out like, hey, this isn't what I want to do, maybe not right now, maybe I'll revisit in the the future, maybe a different venture, a different topic, whatever. But if you say like, I'm done, like it's okay to to just walk away, right? Like you said, there's infinite shots. And so I, I think that's really important. I think a lot of people hold on for too long or they refuse to accept that like things aren't going well or, and there's some aspect of pushing through that and i think that that kind of comes with the territory but at some point like it's okay to also say like i don't want to do this anymore mm-hmm. yeah. yeah 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 it's not a decision you can't take back yeah exactly yeah so w- with going because obviously i i run a service company so it felt probably i don't know i look at you and we've known each other for a couple of years now and just being able to say i'm going to launch a product company and in the 
med tech field. I don't know if I could have done that. Was there any thought of maybe this isn't the right time or maybe we need to be more more strategic in in the way that we approach this because it is kind of a a, a tougher mm-hmm. runway. So it's difficult right now. We're still trying to figure out. We've talked a lot about this, so like what kind of product is the right product? How to like make it useful for everybody, not just us? How do we give it more life? Right. I think what's hard to walk away from is we talk to people all the time, right? So we published a study and over 90% of people have failures when it comes to insulin pump therapy. Over 40% have one failure a month. And like having those kinds of failures, and it could be something as simple as like, hey, I noticed my pump isn't giving me insulin. My blood sugar is high. I need to change it. And you're just at home hanging out. That'll be a big risk. But sometimes you're out or you're like, it's an important event or it's like your kids, right? Your kids in school, they feel crummy. They're not learning because there's some, some kind of issue. We showed through the study that it was it affects how you perceive your therapy going, how you perceive you have good control if you're doing the right things, right? It's such a, like, it's a lot, lifelong disease. And to have that added stress on you because of something that is just like, hey, we're, when there could be just an, like some kind of flag that says, hey, your insulin therapy is 50% effective right now. You're getting 60% of the medications coming through. Just knowing that is like peace of mind for people. Because then they can make the decision like, okay, I know there's something going on. If I see my blood sugar spike, I know it's because my site might be a little wonky, but I'm going to wait till I get home to switch it out. Or, hey, I can do it right now. I don't want to put up with this. I'm going to do it now. And you talk to a lot of people, you talk to a lot of professionals, and you're like, this is something that would benefit people today. So even though it feels like a small product and it's like you're doing monitoring, but it's I think it's like modernizing insulin pump therapy. We're mm-hmm. making strides over the last couple of years. We've introduced closed loop algorithms which fully automate the dosing. We've incorporated blood glucose sensing through CGMs so the patients don't have to prick themselves. I think this is sort of like one of the last steps is giving that like clear and concise feedback that, hey, your therapy is working 90%, 80%, 60%, 100%, and giving the, the patient that full picture of what's going on. So when there's moments where it's harder, like, should we be doing this product? Like, how do we look at it? I think for us, what keeps us pushing is that we look at people and we talk to them and say like, oh, this would make a huge impact on my daughter that goes to school that has like a learning disability. So whenever she doesn't get her medication, it's like, that's the end of the day. Or a mom with a couple kids that she has to be, she's the main provider. And for her to be in, have 300 milligrams per decibel of blood sugar, like 400 because of a failure, like she can't just say, oh, I'm, done. I'm not going to mom today. You know, this is it. I'm not going to go to work. I'm just going to stay home. Like that makes a big difference in people's lives. So I think that's why we do it and why it's like, even though it is tough and it's challenging, I think that's why we've kind of like pushed through it and w- want to see it come to the market. Yeah, absolutely. What are the stats right now in terms of potential partial occlusions, dislodgements that happen even with the infusion? software that's on market do you know those numbers so what we found is that we found that 40 percent number were at least once a month some people can have them like five times a month and the the stats show that because the issue is that the pumps can only detect full occlusions it's the equivalent of putting a clamp on the line that's what they can detect that subtlety in between like a partial occlusion or leak is not available yet so it's really hard i think for people to quantify like what when they're having a partial occlusion, because to them, it just looks like, oh, I might have overeaten or under bolus. And my co-founder, John, he's type one. I kind of see this. I'm using him as like my market survey to a certain extent, because we'll be working on something. And he's like, oh, my blood sugar's high. And I was like, John, are you sure it's not a leak? 
He's like, no, I just, I ate too much. So I need to pull this some more. And like two hours later, he's like, oh, it's leaking from the site. So it's hard to quantify because I think no one really knows. But we did a study or like a little experiment recently where he wore the pump. It's an on-market pump. It's approved. But now with our software, right, with our app. And he went from a three-day wear, which is like the approved amount. And he kind of kept pushing. He was like, I feel good. The set looks good. I'm going to push. And he pushed all the way to nine days. He went surfing. He traveled. He did everything. He took it off because the adhesive was coming off. At that point, you have to change. And he was having some instances where it looked like he wasn't getting the medication, but he's like, oh, it looks good enough. And my blood sugar still range, so I'm going to keep going. And it gave him that, that feedback and he felt good. He's like, okay, I know, like, I soon, kind of gave him that confidence that as soon as a problem was going to, you know, as soon as he saw a problem, he was going to be able to react, mm-hmm. right? So even if he kept going, he had that feedback. To kind of get. And what he said, it's like, it gave him that confidence that it's like, that he never really had. So I was like, it works for John. It was like, it's going to work for someone else. So. But to answer your question, we have some of those answers from our own data, but I think in real world clinical trials, I think we won't have it until we do our own clinical trial. So tell me a little bit more about that and and the next steps in fundraising and getting the product to market. So we, we got really lucky and we found some really great partners through the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation. They believe in our mission and our vision for the product and kind of bringing this to the market. So they funded the project and the, the funding allows us to basically do a series of studies. We just did the first now as a, a preclinical study. We're kind of gathering the data. We're building out the, the software platform, retuning the algorithm and with the goal of going into clinical trials. So we want to have a like, it's a 10 week study is what we have envisioned now where the patient basically says, or we tell the patient like, hey, just live your life, do whatever it is you want to do. What you would normally do is like, don't change it because you're part of the study. The exclusion criteria are really loose. We just want to get normal people to kind of get that wide breath for the patient population with the goal of, of showing how well we can attack these failures in real time. And we're still figuring out the final details of what it is we want to show, what the outcomes will be. But the goal is to show how much faster we are in, at detecting these issues and how we can detect complex issues. Some of the publications show that any kind of glucose-based algorithm will take about 200 minutes to detect the failure, which is about over three hours. And the pumps have a detection range between a couple hours to like over 24 hours. And at that point, the patient kind of knows that there's a problem. So it becomes kind of irrelevant. But they funded the project. We're really excited. What we want to do now is we're opening up a seed round for to bring in private investors. So I guess for anybody listening, if you want to learn some more or get in touch, we're happy to talk to you about it, but we're, we're raising some cash, trying to bring on some more engineers, grow the team, and start getting ready for any kind of regulatory review that we have to do, start getting ready for the study with the probably in about two years, hopefully coming into the market with a product. So life's a little better now. Still tough, but we're hitting our stride. Will you go to market in the US first? It's still kind of to be determined. We have mm-hmm. some partners out in Europe. So we're looking at the European market. We, we're talking to some folks here in the U.S. We have some development partners here in the U.S. I think the right approach is to build it overly robust. So for a software approach, we're being GDPR compliant and we're high trust certified and that kind of stuff. So regardless of where we go, we're going to be able to get in. But the study right now, we're targeting a European study. So maybe Europe first and then U.S. But who knows, right? Still a couple of years. Sometime. Yeah. Who's your ideal growth partner? It's tough because we're working on different products, so we're coming at it from different angles. I think the the we're targeting insulin pump companies to partner with. We want to bring this to their platform because we think this should be sort of the gold standard for the industry. 
So having a strong partner in an insulin pump partner would obviously help us grow. Having strong clinics, ones that are big hubs for insulin pump patients and sort of a diverse population too, right? To kind of show that it can help people on the pump who we partner with or other pumps and that kind of stuff. So I don't really know. I think right now for with the JDRF backing, I think that's really accelerated our growth because it's given us access to more resources, not just financially, but just connections and support and feedback from their team. And I think that's really going to make the difference in the long run is having that sort of organizational support from them. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have an exit strategy yet that you want to share? Our exit is just like, I think once we make a dollar, I think I might pass out. (laughs) 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 No, we're open to all sorts of possibilities. Ideally, we target a licensing strategy. So where we don't want to be too closed off to anybody, we want to work with the different partners and kind of realize this for the patients. But we obviously recognize that companies get bought out. We're, we're not opposed to any kind of strategy. Our plans is to make a name in diabetes and then hopefully go out into other markets that could benefit from the same kind of monitoring, right? So in oncology and Parkinson's treatment and pain management. So we're kind of open. I think that there's still enough. We're still early on to shape the final version of the product. But I think that once we kind of make this difference in diabetes, I think it'll be really well positioned to see how we can grow this to all sorts of ambulatory medication delivery. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a great opportunity. And I think it's going to help a lot of patients in diabetes, but also beyond that. So I'm really excited. I'm just excited to continue watching your success and seeing who you bring on and who can really be that next catalyst for you or what that next big decision is that that takes you all the way. So this has been great, though. I, I really appreciate the time. I think a lot of people are going to be encouraged by we're not sugarcoating it. Entrepreneurship is really hard, but coming straight out of college and having a great idea and being able to cultivate that startup culture to to be able to drive each other to bigger successes, it's going to pay off in the long run. I'll say it now on the record. <laughs> I appreciate that. No, it's been really great to be here. This has been really fun. I'm always happy to share our story. I think we've had a sort of traditional, non-traditional path where it's been really hard, but I think that we've put in a lot of effort and it shows, right? Every year people are like, are you not, you're not dead yet? You're still at this? We're like, well, we're, we're here. We're here and alive. <laughs> I encourage anybody who's thinking about starting a business to do it. I would also caution that it is tough, but if making a difference in your life and someone else's life. I think that's the biggest reward in following that passion. So don't be afraid to take risk and kind of go after it. 